Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, there's, a, there's a theme in the air. There's a, a, a sort of intermingling of practices and discourses that has, uh, has seized my mind. It's the minds of many folks that I know uh, of late. And that is how the encounter, uh, heretical, bizarre, inappropriate as it may be, at least according to some people, but how the encounter of Buddhism and contemporary psychedelic culture uh, is going to transform uh, I, uh, both of these zones, as well as the people um, exploring this overlap. Uh, I think I've probably mentioned on the show where um, when the, uh, the, the new edition of Zigzag Zen, the a book on the first book on Buddhism and psychedelics, uh, was reissued, we got together and did a, an event at Spirit Rock, and we had done a, an event at Spirit Rock for the first edition, which was, you know, well over a decade ago. And, and of course, the book featured an essay of mine about uh, uh, looking at uh, psychedelics within uh, Western Buddhism as a kind of tantra in the sense that it was secret, uh, a bit forbidden, looked down upon by uh, by some as being uh, tawdry or overly magical, and of course has within it a sort of dynamics of uh, energy and vision that is not, generally speaking, unrelated to aspects of tantra. Anyway, when we uh, got together again recently for this for the second edition, the change in the crowd and the change in the conversation was remarkable. It is as if we had moved on to a new generation. Uh, a new set of questions where it was no longer about is it appropriate to bring Buddhism and, and, and psychedelics together uh, as a possible site of exploration of spiritual practice. Uh, that, that, in some sense, was a given, at least for the crowd there, even though, of course, some people are still not interested in this uh, from within the Buddhist community especially. Uh, but basically, the, it wasn't. It wasn't really. That wasn't the question anymore. We weren't talking about the fifth precept. Is that really? How can you take psychedelics and still follow the precepts, et cetera, et cetera? There was something else in the room, which was a more pressing question of what do we do with this now? How do we move forward uh, with it? And it seems to me like it's a it's a pressing question at the at the moment. Uh, amidst all the more uh, overt and gruesome pressing questions of our historical moment. Uh, nonetheless, it's uh, worth worth pursuing. And tomorrow I'll be speaking with uh, Vincent Horn of uh, the uh, revamped Buddhist Geeks podcast, and we'll be talking about uh, Buddhism and psychedelics. And I'm also going to continue the conversation today uh, with a wonderful woman that I met when I visited uh, Israel earlier this year. I was uh, I gave the keynote at the first uh, Israeli conference on psychedelics, which unfortunately I was mostly unable to understand since it was in Hebrew, not not one of my very very few languages. Um, but it was a wonderful scene nonetheless, and I met a lot of great persons, including Galia Tane, uh, who's uh, a, a, was, was practiced Buddhism for a very long time in a rather strict fashion, which we'll hear about, and um, has been doing it for almost 20 years, has a PhD in psychology, and currently works as 
a therapist, uh, a teacher of meditation, and uh, a psychedelic activist. And we had wonderful conversations. Uh, and it was so nice to, uh, you know, sort of that, that there's a wonderful feeling when you kind of resonate with somebody who's from a different scene and, and sort of, you know, different background in, in many ways. Uh, but then uh, finding ourselves really uh, having a, a wonderful uh, set of questions and even a few answers, I suspect. So I wanted to bring her back on the show and, and talk to her. So, Galia, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. Nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Hey, so I, I, mean, <laughs> I, thought, I thought one place we might start uh, is I'd just like to hear again the, the story of, of how you became, uh, how you sort of entered into Dharma practice and, uh, you know, right. what led you into the, the, the depths of, uh, of, of that work, which you, you practiced pretty, pretty seriously for a while, just as a way to getting, mm -hmm. getting your own story about um, how these two right. zones became together. All right, so um, it's a really, I think, a kind of classical story. I was suffering a lot as a teenager, you know. And um, in Israel, there is this uh, very common common thing to do is to go traveling, right? After after you finish your your military service, never mind. We may, maybe we'll talk about that later. But um, so I went to India, like many young Israelis. Um, and somehow it was very popular to just go on a Guenka retreat there, you know, like this 10 days Vipassana retreat. And I entered my first uh, retreat in Jaipur. I was about 20 years old. And at the end of this 10 days, I was very determined and I, found, I said, okay, I found my, my path. Uh, it was a very clear understanding for me once I started to practice that for me, this was a really, really very beneficial, very straight, very clear way of finding somehow a path of some out of something that I was struggling with long for a long time as a teenager girl, um, mostly depression, but I think most of it was a lot of existential questions and also growing up in in this capitalist, whatever we'll maybe we'll touch upon that later. but I really looked for something different. It was a it was a very very obvious that this quest is like is very deep, and I should really dive into it. And luckily, in the Guenka system, uh, for those who knows it, it's like a very uh, con like constructed and a very um, they they have a very structured manner. You have to do this in this amount of ten days retreat, and then you need to go on a longer time retreat. And I wanted to immediately go and do a thirty days retreat. I was I went out of the 10 days and I said okay this is the thing I want to sit now and for as long as I can. And well, what, what, that, what one question uh was how much do you think uh that part of your the intensity you felt like the sense that this is this is it like this is what I want and you're going to you plunged right into it uh has to do with with coming out of that that military experience because you know, when I, I went to India in the, in the mid-1990s to write about the, the Psytrance scene that was just sort of emerging into the world stage from Goa. Right. And when I went there, there were travelers, you know, from all over the place, from, from UK, from France, from Germany, from Italy, from America. But everybody agreed that the craziest psychedelic travelers <laughs> at that point were the Israelis. 
and part of the reason even then people said, well, it's, yeah, they come out. I mean, what do you think? You know, three years, three years in the service for guys, two years for, for women. I think that's what it is. And, you know, right. it's no it's no joke. It's not like you're just, you know, helping late old ladies cross the street. So mm. there's this sort of scent like there must be this incredible kind of urgency and, and sense of uh, intensity that I think like if for me, you know, going there, well, you know, maybe a little Buddhism. OK, a little bit partying over here. You know, I didn't have as much drive, even though I was a seeker, uh, definitely at that point in my life. So I'm, I'm kind of curious how much of it was also just this desire to, to do something totally different and to get out of that that framework. So, so I think uh, like every story, um, there are several different narratives that can be told here, right? The first one is, you know, the military service was just the, the, the outer structure. I think like many Buddhist practitioners, I was coming out of great, great, great deal of suffering. Most of it was mental. Most of it was like inner, inner struggle and a very, very deep sense of, of, of desperation and seeing the suffering in the world and, and just being, in a way, being very, very sensitive and, and open to, to reality, you know, which is, of course, when you serve in the army, you see it more closely. But I already saw it before, even before I, I became, uh, uh, you know, part of this military, whatever. I, I think it, many Buddhist practitioners, I, I, I find that really dive into the practice, come out of great, great, great deal of suffering. And their own personal suffering is becoming a, a, a very, very strong motive that pushes them to, to, to seek a very deep and very transformative practice. So this is one, one narrative. But another narrative that is also important for me to say, because I, I think it does have a lot of meaning for, for me personally, is that when I sat there in these 10 days, I all the time had the feeling that I'm just home. You know, that I already know that this is that I already I've already been practicing this and I it's, it seems familiar to me. And it's like the natural and most uh, organic place for me to be. It didn't feel like I need to push myself to go on a 30 days retreat. It just felt like, OK, finally, I found where I need to be, where I belong to. And I think this sense was also a really, really strong part of my full, um, you know, letting go into this Buddhist identity that maybe later I'll talk a little bit about how the seeking for the original practice, right? Because I was at that point very, very keen on finding the original traditional, you know, way of practice and just do it like the Buddha taught. You know, I was very, I was very young and very naive and I really, really wanted to, to follow the Buddha's uh, you know footsteps so i think and you, and you really dove in you really dove in for for quite a long time of, of, of applied practice well how how far like how far out did you get i mean what kind of were you getting to a place <laughs> where you thought hey maybe enlightenment is just around the corner i found completely. the right path completely i was i was uh, you know i shaved my head and i did like this month and month retreats i i joined into um, a center of the mahasi tradition which is a burmese uh, very popular burmese uh, meditation tradition that was taught by mahasi sayado which was one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century and i really really um thought at that point that 
I can eradicate all mental defilements from my consciousness. I had a very, very naive and very pure kind of faith in the teaching because I just, as I said, I was really young and my kind of, um, my motive was to become fully liberated, you know, and fully like, not, I, enlightenment was never exactly the thing that I was, the, the word or the concept that really somehow pulled me, but I really wanted to, to, to eradicate greed, hatred and delusion completely from my mind. And I really thought that it was possible for me, you know? And so I wanted to, to become a nun. And for six years, I, I practiced the, the, the layman's the precepts very, very strictly, you know, for long periods of time. I, I lived like a semi-monastic life and didn't um, like didn't go completely didn't go to any kind of entertainment things and really, really, uh, I would say renounced renounced a lot of like from the world and from activities that I did before and I really tried to embody and to 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 practice in a very very traditional and pure and and strict and austere even I would say way so this was a really and I, I I'm really happy for this time you know because I think it was a really deep and very profound experience of like what the human mind is able to, how the human mind is able to transform in different kind of mental states and, and things born out of this kind of very, very intense practice of months and months. I, I'm speaking about, you know, 16 hours of meditation a day from 4 a.m. until 10, 10 p.m. You're constantly constantly even if you're walking or eating or taking a shower you're all the time extremely mindful extremely slow extremely attentive to every kind of sensation physical or mental that is going on and this this intense practice has a lot of benefits of course you know it teaches you a lot about the mind and I'm really really happy for that period of time also I I had the the privilege of having like a teacher you know that was really teaching in his dharma talks a lot of like the the sutras so i i was really exposed to the 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 traditional way of studying the sutras and the abhidhamma and this this had been the foundation basically i feel that this has been the foundation of my um choices and even in many ways of different other paths that i've taken later in my life you know because I did this very, very intense uh, period of time. Of well, well particularly that, that, you know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of studying. I mean, it's, you know, one thing if you were, if you, if the tradition was, you know, Nyingma Buddhism, uh, you know, Vajrayana, it would have been very different, but studying the Abhidharma and the Abhidharma in many ways is a, is even though the specifics are very different. If you, if you read it from a contemporary psychological point of view, you can go, Oh, this is just pretty good psychology. I mean, it's just a way yeah. of breaking down the mind into these sort of sub components and habits and, and a very kind of mer in some ways, almost merciless deconstruction of our oh, ordinary wait, wait. sense of self. So it, it, it actually kind of leads, I can see how that would lead then to, getting a PhD in psychology and developing that, uh, you know, a, a, a more contemporary view, let's say, of our, you know, psychological predicament. It doesn't seem as as much of a, of a rupture. But given how far you were into it, what sort of, how did you, uh, I don't know what the verb is, 
fall out, uh, find your way, you know, back to the secular world or <laughs> what? Uh, and how I'm not a that... secular person at all. <laughs> you're you know, I'm, 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 I'm not considering myself a secular person at all. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Buddhist in any way, but I'm not a secular person. But, uh, you know, the, what you said about psychology is really interesting because I remember being doing my undergraduate studies and there was this course about perception, right? You know, Western, Western research of perception of how the eye and the nerves and nervous system and so on. And I remember sitting there and looking at what the teacher was, what the professor was talking about and saying to himself, this is strictly Abhidharma, you know, the contact, all the phases of how contacted the eye door and so on. It was really exactly like you said, it was a very beautiful mirroring of this very you know, almost, um, how would I say it? Like, yeah, deconstruction in a way which is very un, not a mystical way, not, not taking any kind of uh, whatever the ideas or, or, or you don't have to believe anything. It's just trying to really describe the, the human activity, the human behavior, the human perception in terms which is very clear. So, yeah, when I started to study psychology, I had this dream of, um, actually, when I really started, I, I wanted to, to be a brain researcher. At the beginning, I thought I would study biology and do fMRI studies and stuff like this. So uh, this was my, my, the beginning of my academic studies. But soon enough, I understood that really what interests me the most is just being in contact with people and translating the, the Dharma or the thing that I practiced in the in the east or in Nepal and so on to somehow to to bring them back home and specifically I had this very um, direct personal mission of finding ways to work with depressed people because I was coming out of a very severe major depression as a teenage and finding a way to apply the dharma and to apply the things that I was practicing and that I was taught um, to people in the West that suffer from depression. And so eventually I found myself doing like all this clinical uh, training, clinical psychology training, and my PhD was already fortunately enough focused on mindfulness that had just started to, to become popular in Israel when I started to work on it. It was really in the beginning. Now is really huge. I think we are about almost maybe 10 years late, later than the states in this field. But so, so I had the real, real luck because when I started my PhD, I, I found the place and the lab that could really support mindfulness research. And so when I did, when I did my PhD, I, I was already actually teaching, teaching meditation, teaching, even I would say teaching like, some form of the Mahasi tradition in a very, very narrow, in a very, very um, secular, as you say, form, but to people that I would never meet in other, other kind of contexts. So like students or patients or things like this. So this was really a great, great privilege because I could start even in, during my PhD to, to merge and to find the interrelations between this world of of psychology, of research, of empirical research, and so on, and my my more traditional, in the lack of other word, traditional practice. So this so is really. What, 
what drew you away from the from the traditional practice from from your plans of being a nun and and that degree of devotion? What, what took me away? <laughs> I fell in love. <laughs> ah, there you go. That's a no, beautiful actually, answer. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was the first step, of course. Um, but I think um, as I grew up, slowly, slowly, I started to realize that what I thought of as my goal or my mission is not exactly what I want for myself in this life, you know? And the idea of, I think some people really um, like to, to live a monastic life and it's really fitting them. And it's really the thing that they should do. For me, it was never the case. I remember coming to my teacher and saying to him, I want to become a nun in Burma. And he was looking at me and he would say, and he said to me, please wait a couple of years <laughs> you know I was really young so please wait a couple of years because he 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 saw me he he knew it was not exactly what the way I should actualize the dharma in my life and I think step by step what became clear and clear is that the way for me to actualize the way for me to to manifest this great and profound teaching was different was to find a, a way which is not trying to uh, repeat, I would say, trying to recreate something that is my idea of how, how the traditional way it looks like, but to become this bridge or to, I always think of myself as a translator, you know, or, or a bridge, the, the way that I can, I can meet people from all paths, all walks of life, all kind of different identities, all kind of different um, classes of society, you know, working with really very, very different people from each other. This, I think, started to become more and more clear for me. So, and I think the, the, studying, the studies of psychology and the clinical work and, you know, be, being in mental hospitals and and meeting people that are actually really, really suffering and they really need help. This gave me a lot of food for thought because the Buddhist, the again, I, I'm sorry to, to repeat this word, but I just don't have another word for it, but the traditional Buddhist practice, the way it's perceived in the West even more so, is not, is not fitting at all for people who suffer like from mental illness or from depression and anxiety and so on, it's it's not it's it's not possible for 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 a person who is now struggling with whatever a psychotic crisis or you know a PTSD or so on. It's not a possible um, thing for him to to go on a, on a medication retreat. And still, I think the Dharma has a lot to offer, and we see it all the time with the really great great wave of mindfulness even i would say the revolution of mindfulness practice everywhere right well talk a little about that since you've been working in that for so long and you've seen you know you've been you've had a, a front seat at, at watching how at least israeli society mm -hmm. has absorbed mindfulness and and brought it into contact with other practices and other institutions um, and of course, that's you know happening uh, throughout the West in in all sorts of ways that are that are almost kind of dizzying at this point, uh, seeing how far it has gone. What are some of your feelings now about how it's developed? Is there 
you know, on the one hand, it's a very successful example of taking aspects of, of Buddhism and taking it away from a traditional, somewhat alien context and bringing it into a, a place where ordinary people who are facing ordinary suffering, but sometimes great suffering, uh, uh, you know, can can avail themselves of these tools. Um, and yet, you know, as we see the thing go forward and as we see, you know, capitalism as it is and uh, institutions as they are absorbing these teachings, you know, as the picture can be, gets more complicated. And I, I'm curious how how you see uh, mindfulness now in terms of how it's developed and how it relates or, or increasingly maybe doesn't relate with certain aspects of traditional Buddhism that that seem important. Right. So actually, this question brings me to um, this uh, term that I'm, I'm very busy with uh, lately, which is like the idea of selfing, right? So how, how does a certain practice or a certain way of thinking or so on is, is actually enhancing and creating your sense of conceptual self, Right. And I think that what happens a lot in the mindfulness uh, movement, unfortunately, is that because it's really becoming more and more um, entangled and immersed in this, um, how would I call it, this uh, well-being, whatever, capitalist uh, self-improvement wave, which is also has to do a lot with the way the New Age had, had made the ancient spiritual practices and tradition into basically a product, right? So I think that one thing that is really, really, I would say, um, makes me a little bit, I don't know how to exactly say it, but makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable is the way that people actually use this practice for for this selfing process so instead of of instead of a practice that makes you feel um i would say more uh interconnected more in deep care for the world and each other it it is narrowing down into this idea of um stress reduction or self-improvement and so it creates this idea it creates this image of how a mindfulness practitioner is supposed to be or supposed to look like and again i'm a mindfulness therapist and a mindfulness teacher and i teach therapists and i see the great benefits of this wave i see the beautiful and inspiring and deep uh, processes that people go through when they just actually start to sit quietly and observe their sensations, emotions, and so on. So this is really, really self-evident. I don't need to discuss this, okay? So the, the critical perspective I'm bringing in just because, not because there are no value or I don't see the beauty and, and so on, but because I think looking from this critical perspective is really important if we really want to, and I think it has to do also a lot with this meeting point between the psychedelic practice and, and the Buddhist practice or, or mindfulness practice and so on. Because if we look at, at it from this selfing perspective, we can ask about a certain process. Okay, does this help a person become more free of this, of this 
outer structures and ideas of how he or she is supposed to be and how he or she is supposed to behave and look like and what emotions are, um, I would say, right, okay, or even, even, you know, allowed in a sense because, you know, as a therapist, I work a lot with, with a method which is called acceptance and commitment therapy. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's one of my favorite um, translations of the Dharma into the Western mind or the Western therapeutic or clinical work. And one main, main, main point they keep stressing out, we, are keep, we keep stressing out in this way of working is what is your conceptualized self? What is your idea of who you are and how this idea is all the time is keep limiting you and pushing you and and in a way it's it's becoming this tyranny inside you know and unfortunately I, I find a lot of the mindfulness processes when they are done I, I would say when they are done in a very self-improvement style okay I would say it like this it just creates more ideas like that. It just it just enhances the the conceptualized self. It just pushes people to say, okay, I'm not supposed to I'm not supposed to look angry. I'm not supposed to 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 feel um, so judgmental, you know. And it's 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 very paradoxical because the messages are very very beautiful, you know. Of course, anger is painful. Of course, when we are angry, we suffer. That's, 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 you know, just a fact of life. But it's really easy to make it a product that promises you that if you will consume enough, enough of this product, you will not feel angry anymore, or you will not look in this and that sense, or you will not be judgmental and so on. And there, I think we, we encounter a real, a real, a real fault i would say yeah. i think that's that yeah that's that's very well said it's like there's a certain regulative ideal of the self that you develop and you can even sense it around people uh, there's a kind of as if there's a buffer so that that mindfulness and, and meditation practice and as you learn how to detach or observe the self or uh, you know, re recognize that feelings are just events happening in the body that you don't need to tell a story about. All of these wonderful insights that certainly helped me become a much less depressed person in, in resonance with the story, uh, and, and to, to some degree a less angry one. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, you know, you get the sense and you meet people and it's like they're well buffered. You can tell like it's yeah. hard to like they're they've got their their internal gravity, but it's kind of at, at a at the cost of of encountering the world of of being interdependent in a way that maybe is different than the old reactivity, but is also still, you know, very engaged. And so you get these people right. who are kind of, you know, they have like a blanket around them of of hat of this kind of smiling um, ease. Uh, that in some ways is genuine, but also seems like kind of a a trap in a way, a kind of a kind of loss. So anyway, you, you I think you described that very well. And so I think the obvious question then is is to is to ask when you started to look at or become interested in psychedelics as something that could come into this process of selfing or could become part of 
a, a way of adopting aspects of the Dharma and avoiding some of these problems or, or bringing them, you know, together. And so it wasn't just that you had a personal interest in psychedelics. It's you started right. to see that they, they had this real potential in a, in a different way than the kind of map studies that we've seen about PTSD and blah, blah, blah. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about something, I think, a lot subtler about how you work with the self as it begins to change, as it begins to learn, uh, unlearn its own, its own, its old patterns, there's still, you know, lots of places to go. And, right. and, and so I'd love to hear how you started to, to uh, f reframe psychedelics from the perspective that you were, you're coming from. Yeah. So maybe the first, uh, the first one that really pushed me to this direction, not personally, because unfortunately I didn't meet him yet, was Gary Snyder. So I read this uh, Dharma Bomb, uh, Dharma Bomb's book by Kerak, and then I really dived into Snyder's writing. And somehow something about this encounter really <laughs> woke me up, you know, and I felt very, very vividly that in many parts of myself, I put them to sleep and that this is not the this is not the purpose of what I want to to practice as you you don't even have to call it Dharma, right? You just I just really want to be awake. I want to really be as free, as liberated, as as loving, as interconnected as I possibly can in this world. And when I started to to look at his writing and to see this kind of freedom that comes out of of the you know the willingness to really experience life, to really, really experience life. And it has a lot to do, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a chance. It's not just a mistake or, 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 or some kind of, of fault that so many Zen masters have so many wine songs, right? And they, they were writing endlessly about how they become drunk and look at the moon and how they drink more wine and drink more wine. Something about this, um, I would say this deep acceptance or this deep willingness to say, okay, it's forbidden, but I do it. You know, it's not a, it's not even like an idea of if it's good or if it's bad, because when I do it, something happens to me that is beyond my, my usual sense of who I am and what I am. And I, I let go in a different way. And this helps me to let go in, in many levels, even after I become sober, right? I think about, you know, uh, many, many Zen poets that I really love that all the time uh, drink and write poems about, about, about wine and so on. So after this push, I just said, okay, I agree. And it was uh, around me. And I started to experiment with, with, with mind-altering substances. And in the beginning, I remember that I said to myself, gosh, how do people do this stuff without like months and months of retreats? I just didn't understand how they can handle this intensity without the mental training that I had been through, you know, because it was so intense for me. And, and I said, okay, this mental training is really the best kind of, um, how would I say, you know, workout before, <laughs> before you go into this outer spaces of psychedelics. But 
step by step uh, from from experimenting with my own mind and from starting to get to know this working with the substances in different communities and so on I started to look at the potential of these substances to really bring people into touch, into deep kind of touch um, with experience, you know, and to open realms of, of mentates and to open realms of, of livelihood. I don't know exactly how to describe, but to really bring them in contact with things that Previously, they were unable to come in touch with. And I think that in this sense, um, psychedelic is a very, very, very strong gate. A very, very strong... Um, um, I don't want to reduce it into the world the word mechanism, but it's some, some kind of, of, yeah, technology, you can call it, whatever you like, but that really help you to come in touch with different realms and different levels and different parts of your experience, which are in a way, um, for many of us, it's almost impossible to come in touch with um, without the help of this medicine plants or, or substances or molecules or you, you name it, whatever you like. Yeah, and so, so you, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think that um, when I started to, to, to really learn and to experiment with this, with this different substances, I, I, I started to understand that different things that had been um, conceptually clear to me, for example, compassion is a very good example. Okay, I, 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 I feel that. Mm, the way that I embody compassion today is deeply, deeply connected to my work with, with the medicine, right? And that I could have never come in touch with these levels and the, this depth of compassion, which are in me now and has always probably been in me in a way as much as there is a me. But I could have not come in touch with them without the really generous and beautiful help of the medicine. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great place to to just, just pause for a moment because um, I think it's a good example. You know, people think about you know psychedelics. Maybe they give you you know crazy visionary experience of other realms, or they they introduce you know experiences of bliss, or they ex introduce experiences of great terror. Uh, but w one of the of my uh, a recent more recent experiences being. Um, you know, having been doing a lot more meditation recently over the last few years and having the opportunity to drink ayahuasca in, in uh, Brazil, mm -hmm. uh, uh, discovering, one, what very much what you said, like it's almost hard for me to imagine how someone would do, this, it, ayahuasca in particular, to my mind, even in, co in comparison with other uh, psychedelics, uh, and, and not have a, a Dharma practice because it was just very clear immediately that that the appropriate way to respond and navigate the space drew from the same set of, of uh, tools and attitudes that I had developed in meditation in, in retreats and in a daily practice. But more than that was how um, my own difficulties, my own psychological issues, 
became bound up with much more universal problems, uh, meaning, you know, yeah. things that are inherent to human experience, things that are inherent to being an animal on a planet, things that are inherent to being in history with all of these large scale forces that are were, were, were already going before I arrived and will keep going after me. And right. that there's a, because of the visionary capacity, I was able to sort of not leapfrog over my own suffering, but, but see the way that my own suffering was bound up intimately and directly into the, the great mass of suffering that is the human lot and maybe even beyond the human lot. And having to deal with that, what are you going to do? Am I going to hide? Am I going to let it steamroller me? Am I just going to embrace it or try to uh, tune my heart to that mass? Um, like that challenge in the ceremony has definitely shifted the way in which I deal with my own ordinary daily sufferings because I see them in a different framework. And, and it's, it's also one where I, I recognize that there's no escape. There's no easy escape. I keep, I keep having a, a line in my head that's coming up throughout this conversation about, uh, something Trungpa wrote about the sort of, you know, Dharma warrior position is that. Um, you have an ever more tender broken heart and that mm -hmm. idea of moving into the broken heart and, but being incredibly tender as that, as in a way, the only response to this massive suffering, uh, you know, was profoundly revelatory as a mode of, uh, of compassion. And again, like you say, outside of that context, it's, it's hard to make that leap. You know, you can recognize intellectually, oh, my suffering is like other people's suffering. My, my issues are, are general as well. Um, but it's a lot harder to, you know, kind of have to raise the, the oomph to meet it um, outside of that particular uh, context. So I think that's a, a wonderful example of a place where the, the practices, if you will, feed, can feed each other. Right. And, you know, it's really the second uh, term I thought about mm, before our discussion that I, I, I'm dealing with and like busy with uh, lately. And also, it comes from the same acceptance and commitment uh, frame of, of mind is avoidance and mainly experiential avoidance. So um, I think that what you describe is really, really touching upon this this point, because as human beings, we have this fields of, of experiences, sens physical sensations, emotions, or thoughts that we are not willing to, to come in touch with. That we, we say, no, this is unbearable. This I cannot, I cannot stand. Okay, and mostly when I work as a therapist, when when I do transformative and healing work with people, we try to find this the the, the boundaries of this space of the avoidant um, mechanism that you develop, and to try together to touch these parts. And for many people, for most of us in a way, it is so difficult to do. It is so difficult to do, and and in a solitary. Um, meditation practice sitting by yourself on your cushion I find that much of it is is coming up and much of it is not you know some you know some people describe how 
they went into a meditation retreat and then they remember a trauma that they didn't remember for many years and so on, or they met this and that experiences that were really difficult for them and so on. But many of the people, and in this sense, I think that traditional Buddhist practice can also become a mechanism for avoiding, just like what you said before about the blanket, okay? So people can actually use the practice in order to somehow take themselves away from experiences that they don't want to experience or it's too difficult for them or or is too close you know or it's too bleeding you know and working with with the medicine in many ways um makes you like forces you sometimes very violently to come in contact with whatever it is that you're avoiding and to come in contact which is not conceptual contact you know i'm i'm translating now this krishnamurti freedom of the known uh, essay and there is a beautiful line there where he says if you see a tree and you say oh this is an oak tree or a banyan tree the words come between you and the tree because to know the tree you have to put your hand on it you know and i think in many ways um in meditation practice we try we really try and we really try diligently to go over this conceptual mind and to really come in contact with what it is to be to be this stream of ever changing interconnected you know physically physicality and mentality and materiality and, and so on in the mind and so on but all the time our conceptual conceptual mind is, is automatically coming into into the picture and and if we are very well trained sometimes It's just so subtle that we don't even see it anymore, you know? And when we, we drink ayahuasca or when we eat uh, mushrooms and so on, the, these agents themselves in a way, and, and here we come into this question of is this uh, an entity, is this a being, or what is this, and so on. But something about this ancient teacher, this ancient curanderos and so on, is really making people come in touch with experiences, sensations, emotions, and, and stories and so on that they kept away, that they kept avoiding for sometimes for many, many years. And this is why even very, very old-time practitioners, and I know several that are starting to have psychedelic experiences, they feel that something new has opened to them. You know, that in a sense, their, their practice has deepened or has become richer in a way, or that they found um, support for their, their practice, even if it's just one experience, because this, this way of touching the tree and not calling it an oak tree or, you know, really experiencing your 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 non-self um in a very in a very uh i don't know how to say it exactly but in a way which is very raw maybe this is what i would say very fresh very raw very deep into this actualization and, and, I think and, is, and also yeah. very mucky like we <laughs> talked before we were saying one of the the i think what a trap a trap that that contemporary Dharma practitioners can fall into whether or not they're they're following a very traditional path 
or a more modern psychologized kind of Dharma practice that with an emphasis on, on the, on sort of, uh, self-improvement or whatever is that there's, um, it, it can become very dry, uh, and right. very sort of, uh, pure, very, very purist, you know, it's like a, right. in the sixties and seventies, they talked about people, right, yeah, right. going on a purity trip, you know, and, and we, and you can, you know, definitely see that. And, and that was one of the things that came up when, when I was first part of the dialogue around psychedelics and Buddhism and, and, you know, 15, starting 15 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, there was a lot of resistance because people were like, no, no, that was then. Now we're, we've, now we're kind of refined. We're above that. Um, and I always like the greasy kid stuff aspect of psychedelics. I think it's, I I like the way Hmm. that there's a, a crazy, tacky, weird, uh, messy, gross, uh, bizarre aspect to it. Not because I think that those are the most important elements in life, but because I think those are qualities that that help uh, undermine or mix our tendencies towards uh, that kind of mind of, of, of purism or, or kind of clarity or, or being like above it all. Uh, and so you have no choice but to dive into the muck, into your body, into fear, into your your intestines, if, if it's ayahuasca, you know, it's like you have no escape, no easy escape, even if your mind is is able to to really recognize and be with the experience. Right, and from my own personal pra- experience and practice, this gives you a mastery in the sense that if you're willing to dance, if, if you're willing to really dance with these parts of your human being, you know, if you, ha- if you are willing not only to experience them or to be ashamed of them or to try to become this pure whatever image of Buddha sitting beautifully, but if you, are, if you have this practice of, of being this weird and, and, and coming into these different forms, I, we spoke before about being like this uh, dancing, dancing goddess in a, in a trance party, right? So being having this freedom to move between these identities, having the freedom to be around people, vomiting and whatever, working with spirits of, of great, great uh, rage and fear and, and, and working with very dark and very, very frightening parts of whatever, how you call it, even if you call it spirits or if you see it as archetypes which are which you embody at this moment but i think something about this freedom actually makes you a much cleaner person in a way because all the time we see that when people try to whatever make the impression that they are very pure okay if people try to to limit and to to push away the shadow part it will come out in another way, and usually a much more destructive way. If we hate it, if we try to to eliminate it completely, if we try to deny it, you know, this is a very basic principle. It will come out in a way which is which is much more destructive. I see it very strongly in my personal life. Right? And yeah. once I'm willing to dance with these forces, with the Kali inside, with this dark goddess which is also a part of me you know and some people probably has different parts they don't all all have to be this 
you know, Kali devotees, yeah? But <laughs> if you do have these forces within you, and each and every one of us has difficult and, and, and beautiful, but, but really difficult and painful forces within, I think something about this weird and, and um, just like what, how you described it, you know, this mucky, mucky quality really gives you the, the full, full, full um, um, uh, um, acceptance and the full space to, to learn how to dance with these parts. And I, I find that this is a really great gift that is coming out of this medicine work. Especially for Buddhist practitioners. Yeah, I think especially for for Buddhist practitioners, this is this is true that it's it's uh, you know it's one thing to have an abstract psychological idea about integrating your shadow or uh, you know developing compassion for the parts of you that are wounded, and it's another thing to be you know whatever looking into a, a terrifying insect being that is you know filling you full of. Uh, whatever paranoia or, or or terrible fear and and uh those domains you know they're part of they're part of the weave they're part of the picture you know if we're if we're you know it, uh, if and we're I in the afterlife say, I go ahead. right i have to say about this that we didn't discuss at all but there is a really really strong element of what kind of relationships you, you have with others in this in this sense because when a, when a shaman or when a group of people is holding you, right, in this experience, when you are working with others and you are allowing yourself to, to show these parts of you in the presence of others is very, very different than to sit silently with your back very erect and, and to just contain. It's two different, completely different way of, of self-regulation. Right. And I think the, the, the we, we must put a great emphasis on the relationship part, which in the, in the medicine work is a very, very beautiful thing. It really gives you a practice of intimacy and the practice of interdependence and the practice of trust that is very, very challenging, but is really, really deep and can really can be so, so profoundly therapeutic for for all of us, I think. I think that's um, that's that's very beautiful. I mean, one of the ways I, I you know I think about it is that we all we all have, we're all partly made of pathology, however you want to think about pathology, and um, that uh, what that one of the psychedelics are amazing and sometimes even a, a, can be dangerous for certain people because of the way in which it 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 sort of revitalizes and reframes pathological sides of ourselves. Uh, right. and, and that can be very difficult, but I, I think you're incredibly correct, and I had never really thought about it this way before, is that something happens when you are able to share or be in the space of your own pathology in, within a larger container that is made up yeah. of other people who are intimate with that process or have, they have gone through it themselves, and being able to be that way in group in relationship um even if it's in informal situations i mean i'm thinking of many you know informal uh crazy party situations not necessarily right. structured ayahuasca groups right. but it's really about that the way in which people can witness and hold each other in their pathology that changes your own relationship to this to that side of yourself and i think in this sense 
this is a very radical movement that, as you said, a trans party can be a very, very radical movement in this sense because it is really giving you a very, very strong uh, sense of freedom to just become and to actualize you know, it can be, it can not, of course, not all trans parties and so on, but it can be a very, very unique in our society, in our capitalistic and strict and narrowing society that keeps all the time telling you how you should look and how you should feel and how you should behave. And in every, all the time, the, the external authority is really, really pressing you down. These spaces are very, can be very, very special because they really give you, in the presence of other, the feeling that you are just very free to actualize and to manifest as you are right now. And this is, for me, this was a really great gift, you know, and it helped me going out into the world and going to meet people which are not at all related into this uh, kind of communities and so on with a much greater freedom, with a much greater inner space to, to move, you know, and to, to, to be and to, to, take different forms and not to have to cling all the time to one identity or to protect any kind of identity. And for me as a teacher, you don't even need to call it the Dharma teacher because I'm, I'm really not sure that this captures exactly all the, the width of what I'm trying to, to, to embody in my life. But I think this gave me a lot of, of perspective on how, how we walk in this world. And also as a Buddhist practitioner, how I used to walk in the world and what kind of external authority I pushed on myself as, as, as you know, as a result of my own practice. So. That's all uh, wonderfully said. You know, it's, it's, it's a shame we have to wind it down here. I mean, I, I had right. a feeling this was going to go really fast and I have a bunch of other questions and, and comments <laughs> I'd love to make. I mean, as I, as I said at the beginning, it, this seems like a, a very rich point of overlap right now, right. and and right. that to, to boil it, you know, to maybe not sounds too utopian, but just that um, I think psychedelics might be able to help mindfulness move on to another phase. But right. anyway, Galia, thanks so much for joining us on, on Expanding Mind. Thank you. It was great. It was great. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. All right. Cheers. All right, folks. Until next week. Keep your minds open.